Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, Mohawk College and a little bit of hot water because Maxime Bernier will speak there. He is on the federal election campaign and part of the debate. Should he not be allowed to speak at the college? Whether you agree with his politics or not? A new Ipsos poll says Canadians want to help with climate change. We just don't want to pay for it. And the Ontario Chamber of Commerce wants more pot stores. We find out why on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. An op-ed emerged today about Mohawk College's event this weekend where Maxime Bernier and his party have rented space. Uh, The piece argues that Mohawk should have declined to rent the space uh, to Maxime Bernier. To talk more about all of this, Bill Steinberg is with us, Press Secretary, Public Affairs, Mohawk College, and with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, yeah, you're very welcome, Scott. Uh, can a college or, or university or anybody really uh, decline uh, such, an in, uh, such a, a rental space to someone who's actually a federal campaign uh, candidate and, and will be in the debate? Well, that's the question. That was the question that the op-ed posed as well. Um, I mean, really, we uh, um, McIntyre Performing Arts Center is uh, it's public space that's rented all the time, um, and for many different reasons. And uh, and the federal party is a party that is recognized in the natu- in the national uh, dialogue. In fact, I mean, we're going to be able to hear from them uh, in the national t- televised debates. Uh, so, it isn't. Uh, this is a situation where we have policies in place to um, protect against uh, inciting hate. Uh, that is a clear policy in our in our facilities agreements. And uh, um, in this situation, um, that is not something we think is uh, is going to happen. So uh, this event will go ahead as planned. That's correct. Yeah. So when did you first hear about this concern? Uh, about. The event was booked uh, several weeks before uh, the uh, the writ dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, and and so it was. Uh, it's actually a forum. It's not a, a or it wasn't. Uh, it's not created as a campaign stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a forum um, to, um, with uh, a couple of uh, doctorate uh, speakers uh, as well as a controversial uh, host and uh, and. Uh, um, Maxime Bernier as the as the uh, leader of the party. And has there been much of uh, you know certainly this is is made headlines and has has people who uh, you know press secretaries such as you, yourself working yeah. on this. But how much of a commotion has actually been made about this? I mean, there's lots of there's a lot of uh, uh, discourse or I guess a dialogue online. Um, to be honest, you're only the second folks who have uh, contacted us to talk about it. Um, we uh, um, we're kind of monitoring it, and to be honest, they, they probably the biggest thing is we're seeing that other groups may want to take part or be present. Um, but it's a ticketed event. Right. It happens uh, at a time Sunday evening. The building has actually been it's it's closed mm-hmm. uh, to any to everybody but ticketed events because there's no business of the college happening at that time. Um, so uh, because of that, I mean, we always have the uh, right, and we uh, um, we're be using it in this in this case mm-hmm. to have extra extra security on place. Um, we're working with the uh, local police service as well as uh, increasing our own um, 
security presence um, because of some of that uh, um, kind of aggressive language that we've seen in social media. Right. Uh, considering uh, uh, Maxime Bernier is a federal election candidate and, as you mentioned, will be in the debates, are you surprised this is even an issue? Uh, no, I'm not surprised. Uh, um, uh, he, I mean, he's a controversial person in in some ways. It, he wasn't in the uh, in the national debate initially and mm-hmm. was invited in afterwards. So, um, I mean, can't ignore that that uh, the party's positions are controversial, but uh, they obviously have not been uh, breaking any laws. Mm-hmm. And and you know, um, we're very clear about that. I mean, we we everything has to happen. On our properties, in our facilities, in accordance with the criminal code and in, in accordance with the uh, Ontario Human Rights Code, um, and uh, we do everything we can to to monitoring and uh, maintain that. Uh, do you think this is uh, less about Maxime Bernier and more about the other speakers that are coming as well? Uh, I think that may be the case for some people. Um, I mean, we've heard people from both sides. I have to say, I mean, the. Uh, um, people who are opposing this event uh, have been the most vocal, but um, I have personally received uh, several letters uh, from people saying that they um, may not agree with the uh, the party's position, yeah. but they, they do agree with the idea that um, there should be a dialogue. Yeah, and again, it's um, it's uh, it's it's probably a pain for Mohawk College to have to go through this. But on the other hand, it brings to everybody's attention uh, how this all works, how the process works, and what everybody's responsibility is, and shows that that Mohawk is uh, you know whether it's caught between a rock or a hard place or not, it's doing the right thing. I mean, you can't not let a federal candidate speak. Well, I mean. There is, that is that is a you know a va- really valid point. I mean, uh, I mean, can I just say that we uh, Scott, for us the safety of our campus, our students, the staff, and all of our visitors is critical for us. And uh, and I mean, we have to consider when the event is happening uh, in all of this context. It's happening after school hours right. in a theater that's reserved, so it's ticketed for people who hold tickets. Um, and then we're just working with uh, local authorities and our own security to make sure that. Everything goes well, and that, and we're really asking that all visitors uh, who who are with us on Sunday conduct themselves with respect for each other and, and for the law. Joining us has been Bill Steinberg, Press Secretary, Public Affairs, Mohawk College. Uh, an op-ed emerged today about Mohawk College's event this weekend where, uh, well, I shouldn't say it's Mohawk College's event. It's an event there uh, rented by, uh, a space rented by uh, other organizations in which Maxime Bernier uh, is uh, going to be speaking at that event. And Mohawk College have decided to honor that. Bill, thanks for the time and insight. Good luck. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've talked a lot, although we're hearing a lot less about it now than we did prior to the election campaign. Uh, Prior to the election campaign, uh, I guess primarily because the liberals are in power and they're uh, trying desperately to cut off the NDP and the Greens. There was lots and lots of chatter. Uh, And then uh, post blackface images and and such. And and once we get into the, the meat of the campaign, uh, it appears that uh, now affordability is becoming an issue, and 
many of you are saying thank goodness because that, of course, was one of the top uh, top three or so uh, uh, issues, kitchen table issues that uh, most Canadians feel is important in this election. So where does that cl- leave climate change? Well, Canadians are still very concerned about climate change and, and want to help out as best we can. But I don't think we're willing to pay for it. And a fascinating uh, uh, column in, in on the Global website, which you can see at the CHML website by Amanda uh, Connolly. Uh, Canadians want to stop climate change, but don't want to pay the extra cost, don't want to pay an extra cent. And that's all uh, from polling done through Ipsos. And how much are you willing to pay? Well, 46 percent, uh, nothing, <laughs> nothing at all. 22 percent, a buck to 100 bucks. $101 to 200, 8%. 201 to 300, 3%. 300 to 400, 2%. 4 to 500, then it jumps up to 7, which I found was very odd. We'll have to ask about that. And 500 to 1,000, 7%. 1,000, 5%. Uh, fascinating numbers. Let's bring in Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos, and is with us now. Daryl, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So uh, before we get down into all of this, what I find fascinating, and I'm sure you can explain this because you're a numbers guy, um, uh, zero, uh, $0.46%, and then it slowly declines, 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 and then you get to 4 to $500, and it jumps from 2% back up to 7 and continues that way to $1,000, and then jumps back down to 5 after $1,000. How do you explain that? Human beings are strange. <laughs> exactly. Like, I guess if they want to make a donation, they want to make it significant? Yeah, I think it's probably a bit of that where people who feel that, uh, you know, it, it does deserve maximum effort, so they're prepared to pay maximum amounts. And everybody has a different version of maximum amount. But the uh, close to the, the majority, so 40, 46% say, my maximum amount is nothing. So uh, what does that say? How do you interpret all of this? Well, it really just shows the um, the issue that we're dealing with on this. People can uh, pe- the, the people who are uh, on the advocacy side of climate change believe that what they have to do is convince convince people that it's it's a big problem. People already believe that. The problem is they don't know what to do about it. Yeah. So you know, Greta, Greta Thunberg can get on you know the stage at the UN and say you people are terrible because you're not doing anything. Okay, so what do we do? Mm-hmm. And Invariably, it comes back to things like carbon taxes, where people sit back and they say, where's that money going to go? Why am I paying this? Why is it making it better? How is it going to fix this? And, and all of that is not really been explained to the public, particularly when the government comes in then and says, hey, but we're also going to give you your money back yeah. through some sort of a rebate. It's like, okay, why are we doing this at all? So uh, the, the problem is that they don't, there's no blue box on climate change where people say, well, if I just sort my garbage better, I'll, you know, I'll be able to help, which they will do. The problem is that, there's, that, that it's, it's, a, it's a big issue for them, almost too big of an issue for them, and they don't see their place in the conversation. I, I think you bring up a very valid point, too, uh, Daryl, and that is, is that they don't mind paying, but they're not convinced the money is going to something that is valid. And I think many think this has become another revenue stream for political parties. And there is there is part of it that that, that thinks that, and and uh, you know the the uh, there's no consensus on how the money even if it doesn't turn into another rev- revenue stream how it should be spent. So 
it's it's a lot of confusion and then you had the the provincial governments several provincial governments come out and say well we're opposed to this well that gives people one more reason to sit back and say well maybe this isn't such a great idea so even though we find 78% of Canadians saying we're not doing enough about climate change even spending one cent seems to be too much for for almost half of us and it seems, and we had this discussion yesterday on the show, it, it, it seems that the discussion is either one extreme or the other. Either the world is coming to an end or we don't buy into any of it and this, these people are all, all, all tree huggers. And I think Canadians, I think most people are looking for a balanced approach, but some may say there is no such thing. Um, so how does the hysteria figure into all of this? Because I think it just makes people cynical in the end. Yeah, there's, and that's where uh, the uh, the the balance point between getting people to understand what the what the existential threat is here that you know global warming is a real thing, getting them to understand that and the urgency of it without becoming hysterical uh, and just turning them off, because you end up with two in two places where, when, when you go too far. One of them is you basically say it's so bad there's nothing we can do about it. So coming out and saying, hey, we're all going to be, yeah. um, you know, melting within 10 years. I mean, okay, well, then we might as well have a big party. Yeah, mean, you know, yeah. What are we going to do about it? And then on the other side of it, um, uh, not being um, uh, um, connecting with people and basically turning it into a lecture where you're wagging your finger at them, well, that doesn't get you anywhere either. So we've we've yet to find the climate activist or activist groups or consensus mm. that can both connect people to the problem and to the solution. And what I'm, you know, I think what people were looking at in in uh, in New York was or are going to be seeing in these protests over the next couple of days. Yeah, okay, more concern. There's a problem. Got it. Okay, but what do we what do I do with this? Yeah. And and d d what about Greta and, and we're talking about the 16 year old activist Greta Thornburg and and the in her passionate speech at the UN? Um, does that help or hinder the conversation? Uh, she's preaching to the choir. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's uh, it's it's really interesting, you know. Uh, Ipsos great great opportunity here to do a lot of polling. I mean, we're a, we're a global polling company, so I do with my colleagues a survey in 28 countries every month on what's the most important issue facing the world today. 20 issues, climate change, global warming ranks at about 14 or 15. Yeah. So um, uh, Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader, I heard her in a clip earlier on in the week saying this is Thelma and Louise heading for a cliff. Um, would I have a hard time with, with that kind of rhetoric on either side of this debate? And, and I'm not a climate change denier. Uh, by any means, um, but, but but what I think is happening here is because the urgency and the hysteria is so great, as you said, people are just throwing their arms up uh, in the air. And if 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 this is going to take, and and I asked Elizabeth May this when she was on the show, what would the transformation be like as if her government got in and 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 for society, how would we transform? And she never really got around to answering the question. And I think that's what people have a hard time understanding. And if if everyone thinks we're going to just get out of our cars and, and get back on horseback or a bicycle or, or move back in society and progress in any way, then the world is coming to an end because that ain't going to happen. I mean, we remember way back when when Joe Clark jacked up the prices of, uh, of, of energy, gasoline, way back when, gone. So how do you find the happy medium here? 
Well, you don't do it through the rhetoric. I mean, that, that's the problem. Yeah. So as I said, you know, I, I have much respect for, you know, activists on, in, in this and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, appreciate their passion. But at some point, you have to kind of move off of the finger pointing and wagging and, you know, getting, getting uh, you know, all concerned like the speech that you saw yesterday. It's like, yeah, we're kind of moving past that. Everybody sort of gets that it's a bit of a problem, but nobody knows what we're going to do about it. So what are we going to do? And the best that anybody's come up with so far is a price on carbon. And when you go back to the public, the government doesn't really have the level of credibility to make it work and to make it stick. Hmm. So that's, that's the issue that we're dealing with right now. Also, what about the argument that the prices, in order for it to make uh, have any sort of impact whatsoever, the prices, the, the rise in prices would be debilitating? Is that accurate or uh, has that been explained to us? You know, there's a really interesting writer in uh, Sweden, and also where, where Greta's from, uh, uh, who his name's Bjorn Bjorn Lomberg, and his perspective is okay. Let me let's accept everything that's being said about climate change. You know, whatever the apocalyptic vision is that you wanna you wanna look at, is it gonna be 10, 20, 30 years, or whatever? Okay, well maybe instead of worrying about putting a price on carbon particularly because we've got so many people who are in energy poverty all over the world and their way of dealing with energy is to make, uh, you know, do things like burn stuff, yeah. which is, which is, which is not great, including coal. Why don't we talk about strategies for dealing with that? And, uh, why don't we talk about strategies for mitigating, say, for example, things like rising, uh, ocean levels. Yeah. Instead of doing all of this really symbolic stuff and putting prices on carbon and all the rest of it, maybe we do need all of those things. But, you know, actually practically dealing with the effects that are that are going to be happening yeah. probably is a smarter thing for developing countries to be doing rather than trying to uh, increase the, the cost of living for people, for example, like commuters, who, by the way, Scott, will be deciding this election. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think Canadians, Ontarians feel that they are doing their part already. All, always room to improve, always need to do more. But we've already sacrificed quite a bit in what we've done. We already have a pretty clean energy system, especially here in Ontario. Um, at the end of the day, uh, is Canada doing this for image? Well, you know, many people said, well, I don't mind spending an extra four cents a liter. You know, uh, I'm doing my part for the climate. Well, it's not really doing anything for the climate, but it makes me feel good. Yeah, the uh, certain virtue signaling. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 uh, you and, know, and as Canadians, everybody, good. everybody's the end, you know, everybody envies Canadi and Canadians. I mean, Canada is the place to be. So, I mean, is this all, is this more about image than it is results? Well, the a, a large part of it, and, and you know, the the truth is, our, our you know our economy is so so heavily dependent on the export um, when we can do it of oil and gas products. I mean, so in Canada, uh, you know, is a country in which they've made real uh, um, strides in 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 uh, in improving uh, the carbon content of our oil and gas products. So maybe we should be talking about doing things like getting pipelines built so we can get this. Uh, more uh, energy uh, um, appropriate uh, oil and gas product out to the marketplace, which is where you run now into the issue of pipelines. 
Well, and again, so Darryl, the, now, there now you go. Now right? you're making way too much sense, Daryl, and starting yeah. to sound like you should be running for politics. But again, here we go back to the land of extremes. Heaven it's forbid. Like, Heaven forbid. Here we go back to the land of extremes where, um, you know what? I, I don't want to see anything else coming out of the ground in any part of the country. That's it. We're going. We're moving down this road. We have to do this this transition hard, fast, a warlike effort, as as Elizabeth May says. Well, it's interesting. In the survey, we asked people what the approach was that they preferred, and it was one that respected jobs in the economy, plus protected the environment. It's, it's kind of like that old Steve Martin joke, which was, how do you become a millionaire and pay no taxes? First, get a million dollars. So is, is this, are politicians, are political parties hearing this? Uh, are they realizing that sooner or later this has to be brought into the center, that this can't be a, an argument that's fought on the extremes? Um, and, and obviously, Canadians are the number one issue, affordability, it seems right now, uh, one of the top three issues anyway. Um, are political parties listening to this? Or are they just going to keep ramming through with it? Because we've got you know a, a liberal party that keeps edging farther and farther to the left in order to... To, to 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 get rid of any competition. So where does this go? Well, for the progressive side of this, the, the people who really want to fight on the issue of climate change and really do believe it is an existentialist threat and that, you know, there's a limited time for humanity as a result of it, the um, uh, my advice to them if they ask for it would be, you've already run that argument. You think you're fighting with climate change deniers, you're not. Most of the world already agrees with you. Yeah. So get off that, get off that, and let's move on to what you're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of it, uh, people who are not necessarily climate change deniers but have uh, more of a slow play approach to it and are really not as committed to it, uh, you need to present the same challenge to them by saying, you know, vast majorities of the, of the public, not just in Canada but around the world, believe that this is a, an incredibly important thing to deal with. So you're going to lose on the other side of this if you're not prepared to do something meaningful. Mm. So somewhere in the middle there, in terms of doing something meaningful, is where we're going to find some solutions, and that's not the conversation. We just have people screaming at each other now. Do any of these numbers surprise you, Daryl? Are you surprised that 46% say nothing, nada? No. No, I'm not. It's fact. It's the only thing that surprises me is the size. Um, the uh, uh, and the reason is because the, the federal government, over the space of the last you know year that they've really been pounding on this, have been in a really difficult fight with the provinces, and the provinces are actually doing a reasonably good job of pushing back on this and building a coalition of people who don't support um, support a, a carbon tax and looking at you know alternative solutions and other things so there's enough confusion out there that it's not surprising that people aren't prepared to put their dollars and cents into it uh, is are people going to be satisfied with this is the best we got so this is what we'll do for a carbon tax or is it the other other way around where no we're realizing this isn't working and we've got to put our heads together to come up with something different for the people who see this as the most important issue in this election campaign, there's probably next to nothing that anybody, for example, on the conservative side of the agenda can offer on this that would satisfy them. And even among the progressive parties, it's a musical chairs game. They're not really sure which one would do the best job. Right now, they're opting for the Greens as having the best position on, uh, on, on climate change, but the Greens are currently polling at 12. They're going to be lucky if they win a handful of seats. What's the, so, sorry, go ahead. 
So uh, ult ultimately, where we have to go on this is recognize it's a bit of a longer-term game. Uh, and in this election campaign, there is not going to be any sort of miracle solution. And the political parties, interestingly enough, particularly the Liberals, have realized that this isn't the slam dunk for them that they thought it was going to be. Mm. So they've kind of backed off a little bit, and they're talking about the affordability issue again. So they've even moved on a little bit. Affordability seems to be ha, 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 seems to have gotten the attention of the main parties, hasn't it? I mean, we seem to be talking that, about that a lot in the last week or so. Yeah, and that's because there's one big thing a lot of Canadians agree on. Sure, they agree on you know the existential threat of climate change, but they, they also believe that um, it's just getting harder every day mm. to get by. And for them... This election is about things that take place on their kitchen tables, uh, you know, or using their smart devices, I guess, these days to pay their bills. How much money do I have left at the end of the month? And it just seems like it's less and less every month. Uh, I, I don't think I can buy the house in the neighborhood that my parents used to live in. Yeah, yeah. The house I grew up in, I don't think I can buy that anymore. You know, this is not, this is not what I was promised about what our country was going to be. Daryl Bricker has been with us, CEO of Ipsos. A new Ipsos poll says Canadians want to stop climate change but don't want to pay anything for it. A fascinating set of numbers, Daryl. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ontario uh, Cannabis Policy Council. Now you're saying, well, what the heck's the Ontario Cannabis Policy Council? Uh, that is a lobby group that has uh, been formed by the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. And that includes cannabis producers, legal experts, um, uh, people from University of Guelph, the School of Agriculture up there as well. And the whole idea behind the Ontario Cannabis Policy Council that has been formed by the uh, Ontario Chamber of Commerce is to lobby the government and get them to open up more pot stores. Uh, the Ontario uh, uh, Chamber of Commerce says that um, if you want to get rid of the black market, you have to have more outlets available. We tried to get uh, the Chamber on to comment on this and uh, were not available uh, by airtime for us. We're bringing in Michael Armstrong, PhD, Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University. He is with us now. Uh, Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Uh, the whole idea, uh, I remember this in, in the, the Chambers, right? The whole idea behind this legalization way back when was to uh, make a dent in the black market. Has the legalization of recreational marijuana in Canada actually helped? Help the black market simply because now it's legal, but there's no supply. Uh, it has done some of both. The uh, on the on the downside, yes, uh, because cannabis is now legal to consume. Uh, you know, if the police see you smoking up, they're going to tend to ignore you these days. Assume you're doing something legal. Um, so yes, it's it's better for the black market on that side. That if they're selling something, uh, in fact, they're, they're a little easier for them. Um, but on the other side, the uh, legalization has made a dent. Uh, we're looking at probably uh, more than a quarter, maybe uh, close to 30% of cannabis consumed in Canada now uh, was obtained legally, uh, whereas before legalization last October, it was only medical cannabis that was legal, and that was only about uh, 9% of the market. So there's certainly a, a good initial dent, but there's lots of work to go. Um, does this create demand and then limit the supply, though? Well, that is a problem that we've had in Ontario, and uh, British Columbia, up until recently, has had a similar problem, uh, which is that we had legalization occur in October, 
And in some provinces, uh, particularly the Atlantic provinces, uh, they had nice uh, store networks all set up, ready to go. We, of course, in Ontario had none. Uh, British Columbia is only slightly less. So they had one government store open in October and kind of a trickle follow uh, throughout the fall and winter. So um, we need uh, product, first of all, and we've suffered nationwide with product shortages, uh, although those, those are starting to disappear. So then the next ingredient we need are stores. And uh, Ontario in particular is behind on that. So was the the whole lack of stores was due to a supply issue when this whole when this first rolled out? Well, there's a couple of factors for Ontario. Um, the uh, first one was we had a change of government. Uh, so the previous Liberal government had planned to have kind of an LCBO style uh, government cannabis outlet. The Ontario Cannabis Store was originally supposed to operate physical stores. Uh, after the Conservatives came to power last summer. They decided to shift gears and go to private sector, so that meant a delay while they figured out the legislation, uh, and then there was another delay to get ready for licensing. By the time that uh, was almost ready to start, uh, just before Christmas, they realized, oh, there's a shortage of product, uh, and they decided to limit the initial store count to the first 25. That was what we had that lottery for back in January. So it was partly a change over the government. Um, and the delays for legislation, but then uh, the shortages. Uh, now, since then, however, uh, the shortages have faded, and uh, there's a lot, uh, quite a bit of evidence now to suggest that when the government decides to hold a second lottery, they made that decision back at the beginning of July, uh, supplies had actually already improved quite a bit by then. Uh, Quebec had opened up all its stores for full uh, seven days a week and started adding more to its chain, uh, Alberta had lifted its licensing restrictions, um, and, but we here in Ontario, for whatever reason, got stuck with just another 50-store uh, limit. So supply is not an issue anymore as far as opening more outlets? It's not the, it's not the main constraint. We still don't have enough cannabis being produced. Uh, Ontario, for example, couldn't suddenly open 1,000 stores uh, next week. Uh, we'd, we'd run out of pot. But in terms of, uh, if you look at what Alberta has done, they started relaxing, uh, relaxing their restrictions uh, in the spring. Uh, over the summer, they were at one point licensing uh, 20 stores, I think, per week. Um, and now they have uh, over 280 stores open there. So we don't have enough, as I say, we don't have enough to just suddenly open things wide up, but we certainly have enough to do what this uh, new uh, Cannabis Council is proposing which is, okay, let's lay out a framework at least. Let's say uh, whatever the Ontario government wants to do, let's actually have a path and say, okay, um, here are the requirements to apply for a license. Uh, here is the, uh, how we're going to decide who gets what order of licenses. Um, and then gradually add more as supplies improve. That's, that's what we're missing right now. We've had this kind of one ad hoc lottery in January, and then it was kind of quiet. We didn't know what was going to happen next, and then out came the second idea for another lottery in right. July, and now we're back to not really knowing, well, what's the next step? What about all the people who'd like to apply for licenses but weren't allowed to yet? And do we know what's going to happen with those licensed in July or those that applied? Well, in fact, that's an extra problem we now have is because there was a uh, – whether you call it communication error or uh, overzealous enforcement or whatever, we, the, even those 50 licenses are now tied up in a court battle right. uh, because some of the people who were disqualified uh, have argued they were disqualified unfairly. 
So now we've got this extra delay even on those 50 stores. Um, do do we have the research or stats yet to know if it's new customers or people who were already purchasing the product that are using the stores? Um, I haven't seen any good numbers on that. Uh, anecdotally, it seems to be a mix. Um, the stores are definitely getting customers who are used, uh, experienced users. Um, they're coming in looking for typically... Uh, cannabis they they can smoke, so the dry cannabis, and they're asking for relatively high levels of THC, like 20 or 30 percent. So those are definitely experienced users. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are other users, uh, or sorry, customers coming into those stores, and they're looking for more like a a, a milder product. Uh, some of them are uh, kind of baby boomers. Maybe they used to be uh, a consumer way back when they're uh, young and foolish. And now that they're a little bit older and have a little bit of arthritis or some other ailments, they're looking for something mild to kind of take the edge off. Uh, so I think they're getting a mix. Um, the numbers coming from stats can kind of at the aggregate level, not the store level, but just kind of surveying the population overall, suggest that usage hasn't really increased very much. Uh, it was just under 15% of the population uh, using cannabis at least somewhat regularly before legalization. Uh, it's now just over 16%. So a, a very small bump considering the, the big mm-hmm. changes that we've had. So are stores f- uh, filling the demand of the black market, or are they creating new tu- uh, new customers and then taxing them? Well, given the uh, what Stats Canada's numbers are saying, I think it's mostly uh, they're getting customers coming over from the black market, um, particularly people who are uh, willing to pay a premium price for the privilege of getting a legal product. So the legal product, unfortunately, is priced quite a bit higher than what the black market could charge. Uh, black market, of course, doesn't pay taxes and doesn't worry about testing their product. Uh, so customers who uh, like the idea that this product has been tested, uh, so they know there's no contamination, uh, it's got the potency that's inside that's printed on the label so they can kind of rely on that, uh, it doesn't have the stigma or risk of uh, criminal penalties for buying it. So those customers right now, uh, I think, are the ones that are mainly coming to the store. Uh, in some provinces where uh, they have lots of stores, like Alberta, uh, the Atlantic provinces, uh, I think you're getting starting to get kind of more of the average cannabis consumer who's willing to pay a small premium for a uh, legal product. Uh, the harder group to get will be down the road when we start trying to uh, attract the consumer who doesn't really care how much or doesn't really care where the cannabis comes from. They don't care if it's legal or not. They just want it cheap. Those are going to be the hardest ones to get to switch. Surprised that the Ontario Chamber of Commerce has jumped on board this and started a lobby group. Um, I wasn't expecting it, but it kind of makes sense for them. They are uh, traditionally involved in pro-business lobbying uh, on all kinds of issues. Uh, here is a, an issue, although cannabis consumers are, you know, they're relatively small percentage of the population. Uh, nonetheless, it's a brand new legal industry. It's a new business opportunity for entrepreneurs in Ontario. So I think they're uh, seeing this as, you know, this is someplace where small business people want to get into the market. That's an opportunity if they can only get some licenses. So I think it makes sense for them uh, to be there. 
what do what do customers think of this from province to province? Um, uh, when this first started, there was lots of chatter about it. Doesn't seem to be much chatter about it at all. Um, at the end of the day, should we be farther along than what we are uh, comparing Ontario to other provinces? Uh, Ontario is definitely behind. We are one of the laggards. Um, uh, BC is is kind of uh, we're, we're, we're competing with BC for being the, the behind behind the most, unfortunately, right now. And what was the BC model again? They were a, a mix. They BC of? went with a, a mix of public and private stores. Uh, so they have some government-owned stores. They also have uh, a larger number of private retail stores. They're, they had a delays for different reasons. Uh, one of them was that uh, they let their municipalities um, impose zoning restrictions on stores. So there was a delay while a lot of the cities figured, okay, where do we want these stores? How, how close can they be to schools? Those kinds of rules. So there's a delay for that. Um, they had the same shortage problem that we and every other province had. And then they also got the extra uh, complication. They've probably got the most established black and gray markets for cannabis out there. Uh, they actually had stores open uh, in Victoria and Vancouver even before it was legal. They had some of the cities just decided, okay, these guys aren't going away. Let's sell them some business licenses so we can at least collect taxes. So theirs, theirs was even more entrenched than ours. So that makes it harder to get the consumers to switch. Uh, private versus public, uh, it seems to be one of the other BCs decided to go with a bit of both. Advantages, disadvantages to that? Um, I don't see uh, a huge difference looking across the provinces and the statistics based on public versus private itself. Uh, in principle, private sector should be able to do a better job at responding to consumer demand, uh, consumer taste. If the preferences turn out one way, they're probably better at responding to that. Uh, on the other hand, the public sector model is typically better at uh, educating consumers if they don't feel as pressured to make a sale. Um, and, and so there are advantages to both. What uh, I do see uh, is there room is, for is there room for both in, in in a system like this? Like, I mean, is it is it advantageous to have a government system which is run a certain way, or and a private system which everyone could be different in in some way? Um, well, okay. First of all, I'm a business professor, so I've got a bias to say, you know, if if there's no good reason to have a government store, yeah. don't just right. let the private sector do it. Uh, let the government govern and let the business get on with business. Uh, but having said that, um, yeah, the, the BC model is, is a bit of an odd one. Uh, it's the only province that's gone with that mix. Most provinces have gone with a mix where the public sector runs the online website, uh, but the retail stores uh, are either all private or all public. So BC is a bit odd that way. Uh, but no, what I see is, uh, is more the distinction between, I guess you could say, well-managed uh uh, organizations versus less well-matched. So one of the best uh, run right now is actually Quebec's public sector uh, cannabis agency. They are uh, charging some of the lowest, uh, the lowest average price in Canada for their cannabis. Um, but nonetheless, they're already making a profit because they uh, run their, their network of stores very efficiently. Uh, they don't bother to use a warehouse because that adds extra cost. They just ship product directly from producers to retail stores. So they're actually very impressive. As I said, they're already making a profit, whereas here in Ontario, uh, of course, we just 
recently found out that our our organization lost $42 million last year. Hmm. So uh, wasn't the whole idea was to have the price lower so people wouldn't go to the black market? So it yeah, seems that that's it, something it, that's going to come up, uh, I think, uh, later next year and sometime in 2020. That's going to be a bigger issue. Right now, pricing isn't a, a big issue because we have shortages of product in stores. So as long as uh, a store can sell out uh, at the end of the week, end of the month, all of its dry cannabis, um, it can go ahead and charge a high price. Might as well take in the revenue because you're going to sell out anyway. Right. But as supplies improve, as we get more stores, uh, you're going to start getting situations where, oh, we've got product left at the end of the week. Uh, we've got a lot left at the end of the month. Maybe we should drop our price so we can sell, sell it off. Yeah. We're already seeing that with cannabis oils. There's already a good supply of cannabis oil. Uh, stores, uh, there was a report in Alberta. Some stores were uh, uh, checking to see if they were allowed to have clearance sales. Uh, for example, um, we're not there yet with dry canvas. There's still not enough of that. But I think sometime next year in 2020, uh, we're going to start to see the uh, producers finally catch up with demand. And then, yes, that's going to be the next stage is kind of competing head-to-head with the black market. Once you have enough product, once you have enough stores, okay, then it's going to be based on issues like price and product quality. So wrong to even assume that so early in the game when this is just basically rolled out. Uh, yeah, we're not we're yeah. not at that level, at least not nationally. Uh, some provinces may be getting close, like uh, Prince Edward Island, uh, Nova Scotia. They're already getting probably most of the uh, black market customers have already switched. So they're pro- they might be uh, facing that decision point sooner. Uh, the federal election campaign, which is going on now, does this affect the discussion? We've certainly seen uh, some premiers lying a little low during the campaign. Does that is that one of the reasons we haven't heard a lot about this lately? Um, I think that's actually one of the one of the interesting things about cannabis in the federal election is it's not being mentioned very much. Yeah. Uh, considering that uh, you know the last federal election uh, legalization of cannabis kind of just came out as a liberal promise and nobody really paid much attention to it. And that was only after the election that we realized, oh, they're serious about this. It's going to happen. Um, so we've gone from uh, four years ago where cannabis was, recreational use was illegal and nobody really thought uh, it was going to legalize anytime soon, to now we're at a point where all the political parties are saying they would maintain legalization uh, after the election. None of the main parties are saying they would tear it up. Uh, of course, every opposition party is, is complaining about how, the particulars of how the liberals have done it mm-hmm. and saying they would change it in some minor ways. But it's actually quite amazing that we've gone from one extreme to where it was just kind of a dream to now it's, well, yeah, it's accepted mainstream. And, of course, and, we have legal cannabis. And think about how much it monopolized the discussion way back when, when it was talked about and then even the final day that it was. I mean, it was, it was very much a topic of conversation. Now it's completely dropped from the radar. Yes, uh, we actually briefly, we in Canada actually briefly made the news in the United States uh, last October 17th. Um, and yeah, now these, these days the reporters are looking for things they can write about that's interesting for cannabis. Yeah. It's become accepted. Um, if you're looking for new frontier, you could check out Australia. Uh, their uh, capital territory, the, uh, the little region around Canberra, uh, is trying to legalize recreational cannabis. They just uh, passed some legislation this week 
they're kind of going the U.S. approach. They're trying to legalize at the state level, even while the federal rule uh, allows don't allow it. So that, that could be the new frontier. Michael Armstrong is with us, Ph.D. Associate Professor Goodman School of Business at Brock University, the Ontario Cannabis Policy Council. That's a lobby group set up by the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, wants the government to add more cannabis stores to make a bigger dent in the black market. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.